This morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about fear, about courage, and about faith. Now, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about fear, and um, I went and I searched up some different kind of fears that we all face today, different kind of phobias that we all face today. And I'm just going to read a few of them to you. Some of them you're going to know. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. That's right. How about ophidiophobia? The fear of snakes. I mean, those are the two biggest ones, right? Spiders and snakes, right? Necrophobia, the fear of death. Okay. Glossophobia, this is a big one. Glossophobia is the fear of public speaking. Public, I'm sure nobody in here has that fear, right? All right, so those are some common ones. But here, let's, let's hit a couple of the couple ones that maybe aren't so common. Octophobia. Octophobia is the fear of the number eight. These are real things. Just wait. It gets better. Olfactophobia. Olfactophobia is the fear of foul smells. Foul smells. If you have a boy, you understand that. How about this one? How about this one? Dorophobia. Dorophobia. It's the fear of animal fur. Animal fur. I know what you all were thinking. I am the dad of four girls. I had a whole different dorophobia growing up. <laughs> but no, it's the, it's the fear of animal fur. How about this one? Uh, Cholrophobia. Cholrophobia. It's the fear of clowns. Thank you, Stephen King, right? Thank you. Um, all right. Just a couple more here. This one, if I can even pronounce this one, it's arachibutyrophobia. Arachibutyrophobia. It's the fear of, of course, peanut butter sticking to the roof of your, roof of your mouth. How about this one? Windbagophobia. Windbagophobia. It's the fear of long sermons. Yes. No, I just made that one up. That's, that's not a real one. Well, some of you are going, uh-huh, yep, yep. How about this one? Uh, this is the last one, nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your phone. You know, 50% of people experience extreme anxiety when separated from their phone. I know, a bunch of you just looked up from your phones right now as I said that, Right? <laughs> Yeah, but listen, fear of all kinds affects us. We have to deal with and manage with fears of all kinds in our, our everyday lives. And really how we deal with those fears really um, dictates how we live our life. C.S. Lewis said that courage, courage is one of the least talked about Christian virtues, but it's essential to all of the Christian virtues. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at courage today and fear in Judges chapter 6. Now, as I said, we all struggle with fear. There are people sitting here this morning that are struggling with fear. It might be fear of the unknown. Maybe you've received some, some, uh, some troubling uh, medical news. So you, you, you have fear of the future for that. Maybe, maybe you're struggling in your marriage and you have fear there. Maybe, maybe your kids are or making some poor decisions, and you have fear for them. 
Maybe it's fear of starting a new relationship because you're, you're afraid to be hurt. Or maybe it's fear of ending a relationship that you know is wrong. Regardless of what it is, we all deal with fear. We all deal with fear. So today in Judges, we're going to look at a guy who's not courageous, not a role model, but who God made a hero nonetheless. His name is Gideon. His name is Gideon. You know, and I, I did some research this week, and I dug around the Internet, and I found a picture of Gideon. I did. I found a picture. Here he is right here. Barney Fife. I mean, okay, so all of you that are about my age and above understand that one, right? This front row here all is going, I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> Andy Griffith Show, the Andy Griffith Show. Barney Fife is like, is the pinnacle of the shaking, fearful guy. I mean, if you just think about him, that's, that's Barney Fife. And that's really Gideon, okay? That's Gideon. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at Gideon. And we're going to see that God doesn't reward courage with a calling. He creates courage with a calling. He creates courage with a calling. So look with me in, in Gideon chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All right, we're going to stop right there because we, gotta, we have to talk about the Israelites. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you know the, that the Israelites have a pattern that they have fallen into. Okay, so they're living, they're living peacefully. All right, and then they come along and they rebel. They rebel against God. They get pulled into the idolatry of the, the surrounding nations. So they rebel. And then the next is retribution. God comes to them and delivers judgment because of their rebellion. There are consequences to the rebellion. So then they cry out to God. They repent and they cry out to God because they are under such affliction. Well, then God hears their cries and he sends a rescuer. He sends a rescuer. He sends a deliverer, a savior, or a judge. And then, and then they, they come back and they get restored to the right relationship with God. And now they're living peaceful again. But guess what happens? They rebel. It's just this, it's this cycle. It keeps going, it keeps going, and it keeps going. In the book of Judges, to this point, four times already they've gone through this cycle. And God has raised up four different judges, four different saviors or deliverers to help them out of the situation that they're in. There was, there was Othniel, there was Ehud, there was Shamgar, then there was Deborah and Barak, kind of the combination of them. So four times they've already gone through this cycle, but they haven't learned. And you know what? They rebel again. They rebel again. As it says there in, in verse one, it says, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years and they oppressed Israel. Verse three, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Ketamites came and attacked them. They encamped and camped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They came and their camels were without number, and they entered the land 
to lay waste to it. So basically, these Midianites would come in like a swarm of locusts, and they would devour everything in the land. It's kind of like our dessert table at one of our fellowship meals. By the time we're done with it, there is nothing left. <laughs> so Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. You did not obey me. So let's stop there for a second because the Israelites are crying out. In repentance, they're crying out for, for deliverance. They need a savior. And God sends a prophet. He sends a preacher to them. They're not looking for a sermon. They're looking for a savior. It's kind of like if you were to get stuck on the side of the road and you called AAA. And instead of AAA sending you a tow truck, they email you a pamphlet on safe driving. You know, that's not what the Israelites were looking for. Now, you have to understand that the Israelites were in this situation, not necessarily because of the Midianites. Like the Midianites are not their biggest problem. The Israelites' biggest problem is their selves. It's themselves. It's their own hearts. They've turned away from God and they've worshiped the idols in the land. So the result of their idolatry is Midian is Midian, and they're, they're suffering because of this. Now, I think it's important to note that not all suffering, not all suffering is necessarily God's judgment on you because of something that you did. Sometimes, sometimes, actually most of the time, believers suffer. I mean, Jesus Christ suffered without ever having ever done anything wrong. You know, it's just that it's what happens. But there are times, there are times that we do things that, that require God to rebuke us for, that, that uh, bring consequences to us. Psalm 119.67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey the word, but now I obey my Lord. So there are times because of things that we do that you know, that God will send some hardship our way. So maybe you're here this morning and you are experiencing some suffering in your life. Maybe you're experiencing some hardship. It's possible that God is shining a spotlight on your heart and saying, hey, listen, listen, you need to get some things right in your life. It's possible that that's what's happening. Hardship it's possible that God is sending hardship into your life not to pay you back, but he's sending hardship into your life to bring you back, to bring you back. So, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the yoke that was in Ophrah. So who is this angel of the Lord? Who is this angel of the Lord? In verse 12, you see the angel of the Lord, where the angel comes and he addresses the Lord in the third person. But then in verse 14, 
he's addressed as the Lord himself. And you see this kind of throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Bible. This is what theologians call a Christophany. A Christophany. It's, it's really the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. There are numerous times that he shows up in Scripture. And every time he shows up, he either claims deity, as he did with Moses at the burning bush. He is addressed as deity, as he was by, by Hagar in Genesis 16, or later on in this chapter by Gideon. Or he's worshipped as deity, as Abraham and Isaac did in Genesis 22. So you see that Jesus Christ is the messenger of God as well as being God himself, as well as being God himself. So the angel of the Lord came and he sat under an oak tree or a terebinth tree, depending on what, what translation you're reading. Now, why is that there? Listen, observation is a huge part of Bible study. A huge part of Bible study is you're reading Scripture. You have to be asking yourself questions of that Scripture. Like you're sitting reading this. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah. Why do I need that he came? Why do I need to know that he came and sat under a tree? Why do I need to know that it's an oak tree? Why is that even there? Well, let me tell you why that's there. That oak tree, that tree represented Baal. Baal was the whole reason the Israelites were in this problem in the first place. They had turned aside from God, and they were worshiping the idols of the Midianites. And one of those idols was Baal. So this tree was thought to be a god because Baal was the Canaanite storm god. And when Baal and his consort Asherah had relations, trees and things like that would grow. So they thought that this tree was a god. And underneath that tree was a place of worship. Now, it wasn't any kind of worship that we know. It was vulgar and immoral and disgusting worship, but it was a place of worship regardless. And that angel of the Lord came and sat down right under that tree. There's probably a reason for that. So he came and sat under that tree while Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I don't know when the last time was that you... We're out threshing wheat. So let me explain to you a little bit about the wheat threshing process. Okay, they would take the wheat out and they'd get a winnowing fork and they would take that wheat, they'd throw it into the air and a breeze would come across and it would blow away all the light stuff, all the useless stuff. And the heavy stuff, the good stuff would fall back to the ground. And that's the stuff that they wanted. They wanted to keep that. So typically, wheat threshing was done in an open plain or maybe even a small hill where they could catch a good breeze. Well, Gideon's in a wine press, threshing wheat. Wine press is a hole in the ground, usually lined with, with rocks, where they throw the grapes in it and they stomp on it, kind of like Lucille Ball. I'm sure you've all seen that, that episode, right? But they get in there and they stomp it to get all the juice out. So a wine press is a terrible, terrible place to be threshing wheat. There's no wind there. There's nothing, you know? And you can only imagine as that angel of the Lord is walking across this field, all right, and he's just seeing across there, and all he sees is this cloud of wheat go right out of the ground. He's, he had to have been laughing at that. That had to have been very comical. And then to come over and see Gideon down there trying to thresh wheat in a hole, 
right? Why is he down there? Because he's scared. He is scared. This, this is no Captain America. This is no Chuck Norris. Remember who this is? Barney Fife, right? Barney Fife. He's hiding down there because he's scared the Midianites are going are gonna to find him and, and see where he is. So the angel of the Lord comes to the edge, and he appears to him, verse 12, and he says, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now, if this were a stage play or maybe even a sitcom, this would be the spot where everyone in the audience busts out laughing. I mean, Gideon's cowering in a hole for crying out loud. And the, here he comes over to the edge and he says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. You know, it's like going up to a, a, a four foot something, 120 pound guy and saying, hey, what's up, big fella? You know, is it mockery, though? Is the angel mocking him? No. No, the angel's not mocking him. What he's doing, he's not addressing Gideon by what he is. He's addressing Gideon by what he's going to make him into. But why, by what he's going to make him into. Gideon isn't called because he's courageous. He's made courageous because he's called. He's made courageous because he's called. We, each and every one of us goes through this. I mean, we are a mess apart from Christ. And when Christ comes to us, he doesn't look at us in the condition that we're in. He looks at us in the condition that he's going to make us into in Jesus Christ, that he's going to make, to, make us into in Jesus Christ. So he, he comes and he looks at a man cowering in a hole, and he says, stand up, O valiant warrior, stand up. And he says that to each and every one of us too. He says that to each of us. So Gideon's answer to him really is two questions. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Gideon's saying, I don't understand. How could you abandon us the way that you have and allow this all to happen? Well, there's the first wrong question out of Gideon, because did God abandon them? No, they left God. They abandoned God. So we get to question number two. It says, and where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? Gideon's saying, you know, all these wonderful miracles and different things that you used to do, why aren't you doing those anymore? Why don't we see the wonders that you do? Well, Gideon, an angel of the Lord sitting in front of you, he might be doing some wonders for you right here, you know? The, the Lord's answer, though, in verse 14 is, is good. The Lord turns to him and he said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. So if you want to ask Gideon, where are all the wonders? Where are all the great works that, that I used to do amongst the people? Well, you know what? I'm about to show them to you. And I'm going to do them through you. You, Gideon, are the work of God in your generation. There may be people sitting here this morning that have asked that same question. God, why? Aren't you acting? Why aren't you working in our community, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our family? And maybe God is saying, because I'm going to work through you. You are the work of God in your generation. Well, verse 15, Gideon says to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? 
look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. He's just giving excuses now. He goes, I'm small, I'm cowardly. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm, I'm cowering in a hole. But God says, he just kind of ignores that whole thing. The, the angel of the Lord says, but I will be with you, the Lord said to him. See, that's, that's the, if there's one thing that you're going to get out of this message this morning, it's that. I will be with you. It's that one-line answer that applies to everybody in every situation. He says, I will be with you. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Meaning like you will, this swarm of an army, you're going to strike them down as if it was one scrawny little guy. Because I will be with you. Then Gideon said to him, if I found favor with you, please give me a sign that you are speaking with me. So Gideon just wants, he wants a little confirmation of, as, as to what he's hearing here. So Gideon goes and he makes this meal and he brings it back and he sets it in front of the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord takes a staff and he touches the rock that it's sitting on and flames burst out of the rock and consume the whole meal, everything. And then poof, the angel of the Lord disappears. At that point, Gideon, Gideon knows that he had just been in the presence of God. That he had just been in the presence of God. Jump over to verse 25. It says, On that very night the Lord said to him, Tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God, on the top of this mound, verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. So he was scared to go do it in the daytime. But remember, this is no William Wallace. We're talking Barney Fife. But here's the thing. God doesn't criticize him for it. Because obedience is more important than bravado. It doesn't matter how Gideon did it. The fact of the matter is that Gideon did it. He obeyed God. He obeyed God and did it. Well, when the men of the city got up the next morning, they were steaming. Who cut down our God? And somebody says, I think Gideon did it. So they go storming over to Gideon's house. And they're standing out there demanding of Gideon's father to send Gideon out so they can kill him. But look at verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? If he is a God, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That makes sense to me. That day he was called Jerabel, since Joash said, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. Again, you can't miss the irony here. Barney Fife, this little cowardly shaking guy, just got a new nickname. Basically, he's being called Bale Tail Whooper. Okay? He goes from Barney Fife to a Bale Tail Whooper. Well, at this point in time, the Midianites launch a massive assault against Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and Gideon goes out, he blows a trumpet, he goes out, and he gathers a bunch of the tribes of the Israelites to come and defend Israel and go against them. But Gideon still isn't quite sure. He's like, are you really going to be with us? Is this really what we're supposed to be doing? 
And what he does is he asks God, he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to just ask one thing of you. Just one thing. I'm going to put this, this fleece out, this, this animal skin. I'm going to lay it out here. And tonight, you know, when I get up tomorrow morning, if that fleece is soaking wet, but the ground around it is dry, then I know you were talking to me. Like everything else hasn't already convinced him of this. But, you know, he knows that. So verse 38 says, and this is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung the dew out of it, filling a bowl of water. So God answered him. So that should be good enough for Gideon, right? Not quite. He's like, okay, well, maybe that was good, but I still, one more, one more time, God. I'm going to put this fleece out here, and tomorrow morning if I get up and that fleece is dry, but everything else around it is wet, then I'll know that's a miracle, and I'll know that you're really talking to me. So guess what happens? Verse 40, that night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry, and the dew was all over the ground. At this point in time, I mean, Gideon really... I mean, he's now tested God how many times, asked for proof how many times, and God has answered him every time, every time. This is Gideon part one. All right, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to talk about this. Gideon part two is a really awesome one, too. We'll, we'll talk about that some other time. But what can we learn? What can we learn from Gideon in, this, in Judges chapter six? Well, first of all, God doesn't reward courage with a calling. He creates courage with a calling. He creates courage with a calling. God comes and he looks at a man cowering in a hole. And he says, stand up, valiant warrior, stand up. He sees what Gideon is going to become, not who Gideon is. And God does this all the time. You see it in the, in the Old Testament. One example is Moses. He comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you're going to be a great orator. And Moses was like, uh, I don't think so. I can't even speak in sentences. But God says, you are. You're going to be a great orator. A better example probably is Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want to make you the father of many nations. Now, Abraham's really old at this point in time, and so is Sarah. They don't have any kids. You know, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many, many nations. Laughable. Sarah did laugh. But you know what? God did it. God did it. Romans 4, 17 says, faith is believing God when he calls into existence the things that don't exist yet. The things that don't exist yet. So the question is, is, is do you believe God? Do you believe God when he's saying these things to you? Satan, Satan likes to come to you, and he likes to start with where you are and who you are and what you've done. He says, you're a failure. You're a coward. You're a reject. See, but God, God comes to you, and he talks to you about the things that you're going to be. He says, my beloved, my righteous, valiant warrior, valiant warrior. And you say, well, God, I am none of those. I am none of those. But you will be. You will be. So God doesn't reward courage with a calling. He creates courage with a calling. Secondly, 
We are the activity of God in our generation. We are the activity of God in our generation. Just like Gideon asked, where are all these awesome wonders that you used to do? Why aren't you doing those things anymore? And we ask those same questions. God, why aren't you, why aren't I, why don't I see you moving in the, in the community or in the church or in my family? And God's answer to us is, I'm going to work through you. Your prayer will be answered by me working through you because you are the work of God in this generation. Each and every one of us is the work of God in this generation. Thirdly, revival starts at home. Revival starts at home. Gideon's first assignment was to go cut down the idol in his daddy's backyard. And he did it. So each and every one of us, before we can go battle outside of us, before we can go battle in the community in different places, we have to work on our own hearts. We have to work on our own hearts and the idols that we have in there. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We can make an idol out of anything. It's not necessarily bowing down before totem poles and, and, and carved images. It's anything. An idol is anything that you put before God, that you make more important than God. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that those are bad things. It just means that you've made them more important than God. It could be a job. It could be money. It could be sports. It could be family, kids. If you make those more important than God, you have made those idols in your life. And we have to cut down the idols in our life before we will see God move. Revival starts at home. Fourthly, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's following God in the midst of fear. It's following God in the midst of fear. And verse 16 is that one-line answer that God gave. He says, I will be with you. How are you going to do this, Gideon? I will be with you. Imagine, imagine if each and every one of us in every situation of life, no matter what we're going into, would keep those minds and that thought and that truth in our life, that I am with you. Maybe you're going into surgery, you're going into the hospital, I am with you. Starting a new job or a new relationship, I am with you. Maybe it's a new ministry, I am with you. Maybe you're going to share the gospel with somebody and you're a little bit nervous about it. I am with you. Maybe you're having problems at home. I am with you. I am with you. See, the world tells us that in order for us to conquer our fears, we have to control our fears. We have to claim those or maybe just, just forget about them. Try to ignore our fears. See, but God tells us we deal with fears in a different way. We deal with fears in a, in a different way. We don't, we don't ignore them. We don't close our eyes to those fears. We open our eyes to the presence of God next to us. That's how you defeat your fear. And that is true courage. That is true courage. So courage isn't the absence of fear. It's following God in the midst of fear. 
And fifthly, the cross is our wet fleece. The cross is our wet fleece. Gideon comes to God and he, he keeps asking for confirmation. He keeps asking, God, show me that this is really you. Show me that you're on my side. Show me that you're in control. We all do that. We all test God. We all ask him to show us. Just give me a sign, God, that this is really what I'm supposed to do in my life. We've already got that sign. And that sign is the cross. He is in control. And he is on our side. We know he's in control because you know what? He took the worst action of men and used it for our benefit. And we know that he's on our side. Romans 5, 8 says that, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's true courage. In 1 John 4.18, says there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. I love the phrase in that verse. Fear involves punishment. We see something that we're afraid of, and we immediately feel vulnerable. We immediately feel vulnerable. And it really goes the whole way back to the garden. It goes back to the garden because what was the, the, the first thing that happened when we sinned? The first thing that happened with the fall was that sense of nakedness, that sense of being vulnerable. So we put on clothes, or we put on a a good job or a good reputation. We put on good relationships trying to cover ourselves. But at any point in time, that could be ripped away. Instead, we need to put on the cross. Because in the cross, we are clothed with the perfect love of God. The perfect love of God. That love is perfect. It is perfect in intensity. Like God could not love us anymore. That love is perfect in constancy. He is always there. He is always with us. He always loved us. That love is perfect in sufficiency. It is all we need in life is that love. And that love is perfect in sovereignty. In sovereignty. He has a perfect plan. Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. God's love is perfect. And that's what we need to clothe ourselves in. And if we as believers are experiencing any kind of fear in our lives, it's probably because we've lost touch with one of these aspects of his love. True courage comes from the presence and, and the promises of God's love, and those are found in the gospel. Those are found in the gospel. If you are here this morning, and you have not put your faith in your life in Jesus Christ yet, I beg you on behalf of Christ to do that this morning, to do that. Because it is only in Christ 
that you can find that perfect love, that you can be clothed with the perfect love of God, that you can find courage from the fear that plagues each and every one of us. So I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to him today. And in a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to to make a decision if you'd like, or to come and just talk to myself or Pastor Lonnie about, about what exactly that means. And I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to do that. But listen, if you are here this morning and you are a believer, God has given us an order. He's given us a command. He's given us the great commission that we are to go to all the nations and we are to be proclaiming who he is. We're to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of everybody. But the thing is, is that great commission would be really difficult to do if it wasn't accompanied by a great promise. A great promise. And that promise is that I am with you. That I am with you. So what God is saying to each and every one of us this morning, he's saying, go, you valiant warrior, because I am with you.